Hello and welcome to the Billy Shears Club. I'm your host, Caleb Clark, and with me today we have Leo Gacy. How are you doing today, Leo? I'm doing pretty good, especially since we are talking about fun Christmas album stuff. Yeah. And also fun jazz album stuff. Yeah, which is sort of Christmassy by association. But yeah, uh, today we've got two lovely albums for you folks. We have the soundtrack to The Nutcracker by Piotr Tchaikovsky. And we have My Favorite Things by John Coltrane. How about you take us a little bit off with the, about, a little bit about the Tchaikovsky there, Leo? All right, so the uh, Nutcracker uh, is a two-act ballet, uh, originally choreographed by Marias Pepita, uh, no, Petipa, and Lev Ivanov, uh, scored by uh, Pyotr Tchaikovsky, uh, uh, adapted from uh, E.T.A. Hoffman's short story, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. Um, and so the original ballet was quite interesting. Actually, was not that popular when it came out. However, the Nutcracker suite that Tchaikovsky uh, developed was fairly popular. And then the ballet itself gained a massive resurgence starting around the 1960s. To the point that today, most major ballet companies get like anywhere from like a third of that to a half of their revenue from Nutcracker-related uh, exposés. So it is incredibly widely known, which is kind of funny because Tchaikovsky himself wasn't a super huge fan of his work on the Nutcracker. Uh, he said himself that like he he wasn't a fan, but he was quote unquote learning to make it more tolerable. Uh, or like getting used to his position, which I thought was really interesting because he liked his uh, Sleeping Beauty ballet a lot more. However, I suppose taste of the author is not the same thing as uh, taste the people who watch it. And I certainly am a huge fan of The Nutcracker. Uh, every year uh, for a while, I would watch my friend who was in ballet uh, go perform it. And I've always been absolutely entranced by the music. Uh, have you, did you see The Nutcracker before listening to the soundtrack? Yeah, I had seen the production back when I was a while back, but it was a pretty good one, like a sort of family friend, wasn't it? It's a nice belly. It's a nice time. It really is. Yeah. So, so what are some of uh, the things that stood out especially to you? Yeah, I would say overall it's a nice ballet, but also I just, I will go forth and admit that I am very unskilled in the area of formal dance, like I have no real grip there. But uh, yeah, it's really pleasant ballet. It's got a very good sort of, you know, like you, like I think when we've been going back and forth, we've been mentioning it's like very Christmassy, very like sort of, and also very childlike, you know, riding up being fantastical, it's very, you know, very good sort of use of like a motifs and stuff to like illustrate the different people and the sort of in a similar vein I view it as like a Saint Sans Carnival of the Animals and uh and oh, Peter yeah. and the Wolf. Yeah, they seem like No, it's it's very Oh sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> oh I was just gonna say sort of in that camp of yeah. No, I was, I was gonna say, uh like it some of the pieces kind of reminded me of the, the Swan by Saint San uh, mm -hmm. specifically. And sort of like that that magical feeling to it, especially like the the first act has a lot of pieces that I, I really love. But like the, the second one is sort of where it gets into that like complete dreamlike romantic feel because the plot just kind of stops happening. Uh, yeah. 
makes sense because I think that's about where the poem, like the like the poem, the short story dropped off as well. Because mm-hmm. plot, I mean, imagine would be more derived from that. Um, but I, I absolutely love it though. Like uh, I think what you said that it sounds Christmassy is like incredibly true. I think part of what makes a piece sound like Christmas is like. 90% nostalgia. Like, if you listen to something around Christmas, it's just gonna be Christmassy now. Um, but, like, I think, to a certain degree, in a very vague way, a piece to be Christmassy has to kind of have, like, a certain magic and whimsy to it. Uh, of, like, it has to be either, like, romantic and dreamy, or, like, very upbeat and anticipatory. Uh, and sort of like a childlike wonder way. Like the overture, I think, is a perfect example of that. Like, I absolutely can imagine that, like, playing as you go through, like, a bustling Christmas market with just, like, the really upbeat light uh, violins and the little bit of bells sprinkled throughout. Uh, It's just, like, it's, it's just, it's so fun. I was thinking about it, and it's sort of, like, like you had pointed, I realized this sort of something I realized about Christmas music, at least my perception of it as someone who like probably has some big gaps in my musical history knowledge is like it's sort of in between the more clerical, you know, like hymns and such, that sort of like very church oriented tradition. But it's also but also nowadays, you know, with like there was the very big boom of Christmas music around the mid-century, like, sort of, like, post-World War II, baby boom era, and sort of, like, in between those general spots of where we get a lot of our Christmas music, but it also sort of gets on a few of the same major moods of them, like, a, you know, like I mentioned, being, you know, bright and uplifting, and like you said, it has both, like, sort of the wonder that you get from, you know, more of hymns that are just, you know, like, wow, this baby Jesus is pretty cool. And it's sort of got that <laughs> element of like, whoa, because it's like a little kid. A lot of it is about a little kid's dream where she's like, hey, this nutcracker came to life and killed some mice, and then we got to see a bunch of candy dance around. Some of them were stereotypes of ethnicities. Yay! And then on the other hand, though, there is definitely that that direct appeal to kids that you get more in like the modern Christmas music as opposed to older stuff, which is very. One for all ages, by which we mean mostly adults. But yeah, the, more of the child-inclusive and child-specific element that you get from more modern. It's sort of like an interesting intersection there. I yeah, I think, I think part of uh, what makes it so, like, the, the childlike aspect as it is, like the, like, the fairy theming and stuff, like, the <laughs> specifically... The uh, kind of ballet that Nutcracker is it was referred to as a fairy ballet, um, and the use of so there is no piano uh, in this entire ballet. They only have a instrument called the celesta or the celesta. I've heard it pronounced two different ways, which is very fascinating because Tchaikovsky was really into this element, like above all else, when he was making the music. Like he had it shipped to France in secret. <sighs> Because he's worried, was worried that other Russian artists would figure out that he was going to use that instrument and like steal the idea first. Yeah. It's a pretty beautiful bell-like sound. Like it sort of sounds like a glockenspiel, but not quite. Um, 
when the sugar plum fairy dance happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it fits like so well. Like he, he described it, Tchaikovsky, as like angels dancing on the head of a pin. Uh, and it, it feels very much that way of just like this like beautiful magical daintiness. And it's been associated with magic in a lot of other uh, pieces of Puritan. Like it oftentimes, like, it's actually replaced the glockenspiel a lot in some of the theming in Magic Flute. Um, it's been the theme for the Blue Fairy and Pinocchio. It was used in Hedwig's theme for Harry Potter. Um, it's used to like usher in like the the dreamlike bit of "Won't you be my neighbor?" and Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Like, and I think it's really interesting that they use that for like fairies because normally one of the other big options would be something like the flute. Uh, and I think the flute really does play a big role in like fleetness and smallness uh, and gracefulness in. Uh, this ballet but I think it also works really well because where I think of it being used most is for the mice uh, mm-hmm. of just kind of when their entrance in like the little flute scurrying bit and I think mm-hmm. this is a really good contrast for that because you have something that evokes somewhat similar imagery but makes it even more like beautiful and dreamlike mm-hmm. yeah that's really cool that, I hadn't really picked up the whole picture and also that was really neat with the history of it it is. A, a project on the history of the Celesta in eighth grade. Nice. Leo lore. Yeah. But yeah, it is definitely one of the most notable instruments. And it does really add a lot. It does really, like you say, very beautiful sound. Like, you know, especially how it sort of has that tripping quality to it on the Sugar Plum Fairy. I would, I would say, though, my personal favorite in terms of daintiness would probably be the Flower Waltz. Oh yeah, because that's just like that that horn line. That's just very. It literally feels like you know you're just stepping on the you know heads of flowers and not really bending them. Like you're lighter than air, going to go into space. That just that vibe is immaculate, and he does a very good job of sort of making it feel like this full ambiance that's carrying you through the ether. Oh. Absolutely. I first heard that song. Uh, I don't, have you seen Fantasia? The Disney Fantasia? Yeah. I love, they have a really beautiful sequence to Waltz of the Flowers about like flowers uh, falling uh, during autumn. Uh, unless it fall again. <laughs> but <laughs> falling during fall. Um, but no, it is. It's, I think that song is like peak romantic quality of just like these the like it's like the big sweeping horn lines and like the strings and in general like the horns are like a big theme of like majesty throughout the play and like the grand scale of just like these beautiful french horns um that come in over and over again when you have like the most grand orchestral moments and i think Waltz the Flowers is kind of like the peak of that. Uh, and like the other big time that the horns come in is for like the march, the Nutcracker March, and everyone, uh, everyone knows that dun 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 dun. And like once again, they're it's it's much like it's quicker and lighter, so it it doesn't have quite the like 
dreamy romantic feel that Waltz of the Flowers does, but it still does feel very majestic, and I think it's a very classic and good use of the horn. Yeah. And that does make sense that it's like not a slice and like very different feel, because it is still a march and it's supposed to be like the presentation of the Nutcrackers who are all in military garb. And you've got Herr Drossermeyer standing over there in his big eye patch looking all like, Hmm, I will spank children today. As opposed to flowers dancing about. Yeah, Herr Drosselmeyer doesn't seem like he would normally be a huge hit at parties, except for with, like, small children who thinks he's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Which is, I don't know, that is sort of, like, interesting. Like, you had mentioned earlier how the plot sort of stops happening halfway through. And there is sort of that very big difference of tone between the two acts, where the first act does have a plot, but also it's music seems much more sort of, you know, incident-focused, where it's, you know, sort of like supporting the action of the music, where or supporting the action of the ballet, you know, like, and like the little story beats, whereas the, the second half is definitely entirely for dancers to have the best possible dancing music too, which is a very interesting contrast when you listen to it. And it's probably why we end up talking about a lot more of the music from the second half than the first, but still good. Absolutely. Although, like, it's funny, because, like, the once again, like, the pieces that people think of <laughs> most from the first act, I, I would think, um, are the Overture and the Nutcracker March, uh, which is interesting because those are the least plot heavy parts of yeah. the nutcracker march is kind of when like, where like the the magic of the play starts seeping in more uh yeah. and then the overture is obviously just kind of like everyone getting together doing little flitting across the stage showing off like ooh, we've got beautiful period accurate costumes uh, which I'm all here for. um but then i like then the, then the second half uh, and uh, like you said earlier the 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 stereotyping of uh, various ethnicities it's it's very interesting. Tchaikovsky himself like said straight up like no I don't think what I did is accurate at all. This was meant to be like entirely a distant like romantic interpretation of like how we see various places as opposed to like how they actually are. Like it's talking about like Chinese music being very like pentatonic. It's like no I'm not I'm gonna write what I know. Um, and like, it's kind of from that point on, it's been an interesting bit of like controversy with a lot of ballet companies of like whether they want to do things more accurate to the original Nutcracker or if they want to try to avoid more stereotyping because there's been a lot of issues with, um, shall we say costuming as well. Oh no. Um, Oh yes. Uh, no, especially... Uh, for the uh, Arabic and Chinese dances, uh, for coffee and tea, um, <laughs> there uh, a lot of around like the early 2010s is when you saw more of a general getting rid of some of the more stereotypical costumes. Uh, but then there's like, in terms of what you have to do, like to still try to keep the romantic themes and try to keep it on brand with what Tchaikovsky actually wrote uh, while still avoiding stereotyping, which I think is very possible, but it definitely does require some extra work and being willing to, like, do things not necessarily exact, but, like, in general, it's an, 
it's an interesting bit of unfortunate controversy that still shows up a lot considering once again like 40% of the revenue for a lot of ballet companies depends on the nutcracker and so yeah. I'm just like well shoot yeah yeah and it's easier to just be stereotypical and yeah. keep raking in that cash yeah which honestly I don't know maybe it's because you know I'm not like an entrenched dance brigade leader but it does seem easy-ish, you know, like, you can have accurate costuming and not be racist. Like, this is a child whose entire dream seems to be centered around, I'm gonna look at dancers of candy with my wooden boyfriend. Are, are, oh. they, are, they, uh, are they lovers or are I they think, just friends? I think they're romantically implied. No, I guess I mean less the costumes. The costume part's pretty easy. It's more like... Uh, like some people have talked about the music itself, like uh, uh, potentially trying to make it more accurate. Yeah. Oh, that that is yeah. Like that's, and that is a bit like that's that's the thing that's very interesting. Like uh, some people argue, like well, like he he also made like music that isn't in like dances and like costume, like the dances as well, like a big thing. Um like uh people sometimes uh will comment that they think that the dance from coffee the uh like arabic inspired dancing is like too seductive compared to a lot of the rest of the ones um but then there's some people who are just like well once again like this isn't this is explicitly not intended to be accurate this is like a child's opinion of what these various places are but then like also most people in the audience aren't necessarily going to get that idea. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Pretty sure there were like other people who have choreographed those. So, hopefully yeah. Somebody, hopefully, somebody has put out a production where it's like, don't make the tea. Try and seduce people. Got it. Oh, absolutely no. I, I, I'm personally much more like team. It's not that hard to not necessarily pray uh, into stereotypes as far as the dances and costumes go, but then just in general around ballet, yeah, there's an appeal yeah. towards tradition, and yeah, so yeah. Kind of, the the culture of it is very interesting because it's it's definitely music meant for ballet is fundamentally different from a lot of of just music meant to be listened to on its own or music for movies <laughs> or like a lot of other things like i feel like i liken it most to opera of just it's it's so detached from reality yeah. but it also does okay oh no you go first i was gonna say it's also i mean compared to opera though it's also it's even more involved with the performance because you know it's like pretty much entirely music for people to dance to in like these intricate ways and so it ends up being whereas opera it's more like you know supporting the singing nothing else which is a very big contrast but yeah yeah no very fair it's it's an interesting environment to create music in. i think one thing that all of the music is very beautiful to <laughs> dance to like i can't really think of any major pieces where i'm just like that like there's somewhere it's like, yeah, they weren't particularly rememberable in comparison to a lot of the other 
pieces, but there was none that I thought were particularly bad either. Oh, yeah. They just had, they all had, again, had that magical, beautiful sound to them. Um, oh, that kind of like the, the, the sweeping strings, the very majestic trumpet, like the lovely Celesta that Tchaikovsky kept so secret, which is infinitely hilarious to me. Um, but I suppose music people do be like that sometimes. Um, and uh, the, the, the use of the flute, which once again, I just, I think the, the Mouse King's uh, theme was really interesting uh, with that because it, it, it wasn't very scary. Uh, like, it was just, it, it did feel very much like sort of this, like, ooh, like sneaky, dreamlike villain. And it fit very well. It's like, you definitely could doink this guy with your shoe, like Clara did, and get rid of him. That, that seems like it would work. Of just, it, it does a good job of conveying who the Mouse King is without potentially scaring small children in the audience. <laughs> Which is a very fine line to tread when you're working in children's stories, as many a Disney movie has shown us. Hi there, hanging corpse of uh, Clayton's tar- from Tarzan's shadow. How are you doing? Oh, that was, that was interesting as a child. Yeah. <laughs> No, you said your favorite piece was Waltz the Flowers. Did you have any that didn't really particularly do it for you? Hmm, not really. It was all pretty, it was all, like like you said, very pleasant, very, you know, got a good baseline to it. Uh, I don't know, maybe one of the more, some of the very early Act 1 things were just sort of like, okay, that was there. I guess, I don't know, maybe. I don't know, that was, that would, I, I would say that would be if I had to pick something, it would be throw a dart somewhere in between, like, the march and... Actually, it, was like, it would be, like, between the overture and Marie's dream, but not the march. Somewhere in there, that region. Yeah, something like the hobby horse. Uh, yeah. Although, I like Fritz's little bit, where it's got, like, the, the stereotypical, like, trumpet and drums, where he's, like, running around and being an idiot with his friends. Uh... It's what a jerk. <laughs> very peak little boy um i love it um i i'd have to agree with you although i think that my my personal favorite is still weirdly the overture i think because i just i like the the ballet a lot and so it just it gets me it does such a good job of like ushering in the scene and getting me so hype and like i said it has that like that perfect romantic like but also anticipatory and nostalgic all the same time christmas feeling to it for me, it's one of my favorites to listen to at the start of the Christmas season. I'd say also, I really like, I, I hadn't liked it as much until recently, but the Waltz of the Snowflakes as well. Uh, I wouldn't say it's quite as like sweeping and grand as like Waltz of the Flowers, but I really love like the choral part. Yeah, that was a nice one. I would say another favorite is definitely the Candy King part, where it's just got that very brisk. Oh yeah, Treypock is like, and that's one of the classic dances from it too. Like every everyone can think of just the the people doing crazy high leaps, which is genuinely quite impressive. And to anyone who dances Treypock, hats off to you. Um, absolutely incredible. 
Any last thoughts or? No, I, I'm a, like I said, I'm a big fan of this ballet and I'm, I absolutely love the music that comes in it. I totally recommend listening to metal covers of the song because they, <laughs> no, they genuinely translate incredibly well. I think a lot of classical music does, but especially the, the music of the Nutcracker, I think because of like the grandiosity and the just living in your emotions of it, which I think is something that metal can weirdly relate to. Uh, but speaking of very emotionally based music. Uh, oh, I, oh, I had two last tidbits. One is like, how is the Barbie version of this? So the, um, the faces on the people in the Barbie mu- music movie version of it uh, look kind of melty. It's the was their first. <laughs> it was their first uh, Barbie movie. Uh, I think I really like it for pure nostalgic purposes, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend just watching it for the first time um, without any prior context as an adult, like I would maybe like Princess and the Popper. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's it's a fun one, and it's one that I like to go back and revisit every so often. And my last fun fact is that uh, Edward Gorey was uh, very into the choreography of one of the guys who did a version of this, I believe, Gregory Ballantine. And I only know this because I read a book of Gorey's like, interviews, but apparently he was so into Ballantine that he would go into every single performance of the Nutcracker at the New York City Ballet for a period of time just to see if, like, if someone had like some unique twist that day. That is pure dedication. I'll admit, I love the Nutcracker. I don't love it that much. <laughs> the yep. whole thing's like two and a half hours long. That's a bit of a sit. He he had he had some free time. He was a he was a drawer who had gotten himself established, and was also just generally eccentric. So you know, his schedule could allow for two and a half hours. You know, a couple times a week to see if the dancers were going to be able to pull it off. But yes, emotional music. Time for John Coltrane. So, let's see, general overview, uh, you know. As a kid, he played uh, several instruments in school, like clarinet, E-flat, alto horn, a couple saxophones. And then uh, he started recording as early as 1946 while he was in the Navy. He did a, made a quartet with some other guys he was stationed with in Hawaii. But then... Uh, Around the 50s, he became a really big side man, mostly on the saxophone. Some of the famous people we worked for were like a Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, and mostly Miles Davis. He's actually one of the people who plays saxophone on Kind of Blue, which is like the biggest selling and one of the most acclaimed jazz albums of all time. And it's basically like the album for modal jazz, which is the style where instead of playing chords, you're playing on like a just one scale or a few scales. And uh, he eventually, he does have sort of a problem in the 50s as getting work because he is what we call a heroin addict and thus he you know doesn't get a ton of gigs and sometimes gets fired from them but uh, he starts his own band in the late 50s going into the 60s with this and then he has he has a lot of different people who come in as like backing band let me see who it was on this one like uh this is one of his main lineups here on my favorite things 
Tyner on piano, Steve Davis on bass, and Elvin Jones on drums. But overall, and this is actually really commercially successful at the time, but he decides not to go in the commercially successful route. Instead, he starts, you know, figuring out more technical ways, playing more notes, uh, figures out a way to play several notes on the saxophone at once, and gets more into, like, free jazz and avant-garde, which people actually are very divided on at the time. Some people called it anti-jazz, this isn't real jazz, which is, you know... Uh... And also he gets more into spirituality and, like, you know, different faiths and religions and trying to find enlightenment, which kind of drives him and other people and his wife apart, including his first wife. But he also finds kindred spirits like Pharaoh Sanders and his second wife, Alice Coltrane, who both end up joining his band. And he puts out some really acclaimed songs, you know, like a Love, the Love Supreme album and Giant Steps and just very big, very influential. Unfortunately, dies in 1967 of liver cancer. And he's very fondly remembered today and also apparently got venerated by a church, which I went to their website and it seems mildly like it might be a cult of personality dedicated to John Coltrane, but I'm not going to judge too harshly. And yeah. This is my favorite thing, so as I mentioned, it's like probably his most commercially successful album. My favorite things has sort of gone into Christmas radio, despite not being explicitly Christmassy. From what I can tell, it seems like a couple of the crooners of the 60s just sort of threw covers of my favorite things onto their Christmas albums because Rodgers and Hammerstein were big at the time, and this got associated with it, with Christmas, this specific version, because... There isn't really another time of year that people play instrumental music outside of, like, disco and EDM, and even then they want, like, three words. And yeah. So what do you think, generally? Well, I will say this album was not necessarily my favorite thing. Haha. <laughs> um, uh, I did like it, though. Uh, I know, I know. I'll be here all week. Uh, <laughs> but it's very interesting. I'm not... And I told you this, I'm not normally a huge listener of jazz. I really, I do enjoy it, but it's not something I normally just sit down and listen to to listen to. I'm more of a jazz in the background while I brood about life or I do some writing and don't entirely listen to it. And so kind of having to sit down and listen through it um, was a challenge, but a fun one. Um, and I, I liked it. I... I especially loved My Favorite Things, his cover of it was really good. I actually did, I know you weren't as huge of a fan of it, but I did like um, Every Time, uh, <laughs> the second piece on the album. I thought it was, it, I thought it was very just soft and nice. And it, once again, it's one of those perfect ones where it's just like, oh, I would love to have this on the background while I'm doing something else. Because it does, it does feel very ambient. It feels like something that should be going on and like, the background of like a coffee shop or like an ice skating rink or just somewhere where you're just getting lost in thought. Um, uh, I will have to ask though, uh, Summertime, was that meant to be a cover of like the song Summertime by like from like Porgy and Bess? Yep, yep. Uh, all, all four albums are apparently covers of uh, standards and what, and this is indeed him taking the Kirschwin's Summertime, and jazzing it up, he... Well, you heard it. Yeah, it... I'll admit, so I particularly love the song, uh, the original song, Summertime, because uh, my mom used to sing it to me when I was but a wee little munchkin. 
And so I've gotten very used to how the song sounds. And so I'll admit, it does not sound like the original one at all. And that's not inherently a bad thing, but it sounds a lot more distant. Like you said, you were able to hear it more in certain parts. And I listened to it a few times, but I'll be honest, I had a lot of trouble hearing where the original melody was in a lot of it. Uh, whereas like my, my favorite things, uh, I could hear uh, like in part of it, uh, much more clearly the melody of the original song. Um, and so I guess there's this part of me, it's just like, I wish it was billed as its own thing, uh, because then I feel like I wouldn't feel as let down as I do by it. Yeah. For me, listening to Summertime, definitely the first time I listened, I had no idea. But then once I, like, sat down, I was like, okay, this is the cover of Summertime. Where's the da-da-da? I, I can hear, it's definitely there at the very beginning and it pops up a few times and it's like gotten very twisty and chromatic-y in the way that Coltrane does. I think I think the thing with uh, like, uh, this came up very early on, like if you go all the way back to the first few episodes I was doing one with Ricky about uh, Jiro Inagaki and we were talking about like, you know, covers in jazz and he pointed out that a lot. The thing with jazz is that a lot of it, especially earlier on, is like taking an established piece of music and like putting your own twist on it, adding in solos, taking it in different directions. So with this, you kind of do get a uh, spectrum of that. Like a summertime is definitely on the more radical end, partly because the melody is so very much changed and it's more avant-garde. And then the other ones are more laid back, or at least in the case of my favorite things, more recognizable. I would say it's still honestly not my favorite song on the album, but I think it's still Veritas, I would say. I suppose. I guess once again, just like the... I feel like one can argue potentially endlessly about what the job of a cover is of, like, should it even try to convey the same mood or, like, a similar sound or, like, what does it mean to be a cover of something? But I feel like I couldn't... It's not just that I couldn't hear the melody in it because the original song is, like, a lullaby and that song did not at all <laughs> feel like that. Like, it was definitely, like, more upbeat. I really liked the drum section, uh in the second part of it uh because i feel like I, I don't hear as many jazz pieces where like the drum gets to just go off for a minute uh which is very pleasant because i i have i do enjoy the drums a lot and i think it tends to be the backbone of like a lot of jazz pieces uh being that they're so rhythm dependent uh but once again not very lullaby like at all and so i just it feels less like a distantly related cover and more, once again, just kind of its own thing. Yeah, that is fair. I think, and I guess like when you're saying what is the purpose of a cover, it probably, like I think within, just like I was saying, it was part of a cover is like giving the very 
basic level for someone to start on, and then you can like build on it in your own way. So, in a in a sense, he did that. But yeah, I can definitely see where it's like he went a long way from the original melody. But it's still you can definitely see it there if you like squint at it and just yeah. No, that's that fair. Oops, sorry. You go. Yeah. yeah, I will. I would definitely probably agree because, like I mentioned, I'm not into like the super super free jazz level. Like I'm, I'm gonna do a little bit of free jazz. I'm gonna do a little bit of chaos, but not full free jazz. Like I like some some. I'm at the level where I like thirty to forty percent of Sun Ra songs. Like I'm not a full Sun Ra guy, but I do like some Sun Ra songs. It's. I'm learning to appreciate it a bit more, but I, I'm kind of there with you. Of I, I do like the consistency. Um, that jazz, like free jazz, sometimes lacks. Uh, maybe maybe I need patterns too much, but uh, but no, I, I thought a lot of the other songs did a very good job uh with that as well though or like maybe they just they had the mood that i was looking for uh a bit more but no i i it was still a pleasant listen um and i i I think there is something to be said though i i didn't necessarily think about it that way but of covers and jazz essentially not necessarily meaning like we're directly trying to capture what the original song was, but more use it as a springboard. I think I think that is an interesting thing about the nature of jazz. Just like because like you said, there 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 is so much not just necessarily in just free jazz alone, but in general, there's kind of a lot of improvisation and trills. And yeah. so to kind of ask for a direct cover in jazz would be kind of weird because it just yeah. isn't what jazz is very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like a. I think of a. It's like if you had, let's say, a really good cubist inspired person was like, "Hey, can you make this photorealistic fern?" Like it's definitely a thing that takes skill, but it's not like the main point of their drawings. I would say, but yeah. I do, I do definitely feel a lot closer with the specifically the cover of My Favorite Things and Not For Me. Like, I thought those were still overall, like, a more manageable level of jazz and chaos, you know, like, they definitely had, like, the wild card elements, like, the he goes a little bit nuts on the sax for, but not for me. But, like, it's still got, you know, more... It's a little bit more centered. It's a little bit more pleasant to the ear. And also the playing from McCoy Tyner is just really pretty. Like, very nice chord vamping all around. And I was like, okay. You're cool, McCoy. Cool, McCoy. But yeah. I... No, I, I agree. I really... I actually really liked the, the part where he goes a bit hand saxophone and the... But not for me. I, okay, I think... I wasn't entirely accurate when I said before that I don't listen to a ton of jazz. It's more I just listen to like big band swing jazz. Uh, so listening to anything like relaxing and freeform, 
Uh, I just kind of don't know what to do with myself because I don't relax. That's just not me. Uh, unless I am forced um, at gunpoint. Uh, but uh, no, like it's, I, I think the, the more up-tempo nature uh, of that one appealed to me a lot. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not something I overall I would have listened to without a recommendation. And not even necessarily something that, like, I feel like I could accurately recommend because I know so little about this kind of music overall. So I don't know how it would necessarily stack up against a lot of other albums of similar genre. But at the same time, it, it makes me want to listen to more. It is still very beautiful and pleasant to listen to. Yeah, yeah I will admit I am definitely very pick and choose when it comes to the earlier forms of jazz. I get, I get a little bit more informed when it gets more into like the jazz fusion era. But yeah, this definitely I'm a little weaker on, but it is definitely a very nice listen that warms you up to the idea of, you know, they check out all these weird modalities and, you know, dissonance. Like, before you get into Love Supreme and Giant Steps, this would be a good little step to take. <laughs> it's a love moderate. It's a love decent. I would, I would say, like, every time we say it, we say goodbye, that's like the most conventional, the most ballady. It's also the shortest on here, which is weird because it's like five minutes and 39 seconds, but it still feels like this is far too short, Mr. Coltrane. Keep playing that saxophone, sir. You're not done yet. But it was still, it was still nice, but it was, it was probably, me personally, the, like, just least interesting, but also that's because I have I seem to have built up more of a tolerance for weird jazz. So I'm, I'm like, summertime, you're, you're pretty good. I was actually starting to groove to summertime by third list, and I was like, yeah. Weird it up, boys. Weird it up for me, daddy. <laughs> I, I, no, I think, I think it does have, like, it, the more you listen to it, the more it's like, well, dang it, I can't really help but uh, toe tap. Like, it, it grows on you, I think. Mm. At least it grows on me. You, you also <laughs> said, uh, before, and I'm from a lot of Christmas albums, that's the part that confused me, is because, <laughs> okay, I feel like I could sort of see favorite things. Yeah. Like, it, it does have, going back to it again, the romantic whimsy, especially when it is, uh, without the lyrics, it's just, it's just the tune. But, like, in general, it doesn't feel super Christmas-like to me. I don't know if you've had some experience, though. I would... I would say... So the main... Here's a little bit of honesty. I actually hadn't listened to the full album before you came to me and said Nutcracker, and I was really struggling for anything that sounded sort of Christmassy. And so I just went off the title track. Which is very Christmassy, and then yeah, the rest of it. I mean, there's not much Christmassy about a song called "Summertime," but you know, it's still nice. I mean, if you're Australian, uh, <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, I think that's fair. I was just curious to see your take on the whole situation because I think 
what is Christmas music, once again, is 90% dependent on nostalgia. Like, mm. it's, it's so based on what you hear, you've heard growing up or what you hear blasted in the CVS every time you go in. Yeah, I think, at least for my favorite things, I think, yeah, it's just, you know, the general coolness, the association with the My Favorite Thing song. And then, like I mentioned before, just, like, not really being many, you know, ways to get instrumental music on the radio outside of Christmas, you know. I think those were the main things that make it that particular song christmas Eve. Yeah. No, that- fair but thank you so much for the album i'm so happy that i got a chance to listen to it yeah thank you for bringing the nutcracker now that we've had these nutcracker thoughts uh, that's about all the time that we have for today i think unless you had very final thoughts on jungle dream um no but i'm gonna listen to more jazz all right that sounds like a good plan in that case you've been listening to the billy shears club the albums that we listened to were the nutcracker by piotr tchaikovsky and my favorite things by john coltrane i'm caleb clark I'm Leo Gacy. And thanks for listening to the Billy Shears Club. Bye-bye.